Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given to us in your word. We thank you that your word does not return void. And, uh, and Lord, um, Lord, your sanctifying work is one of a lifetime. It doesn't happen overnight. And, uh, and, and at the same time, Lord, we know that we are set apart for you and unto you, to your glory. And so I ask, Father, that you would help us to focus clearly on your word, that, um, Lord, as always, I pray that it would be applicable to our lives, and, uh, and, Lord, that we would continue to submit ourselves to the work of your hand in our lives, that uh, we realize that you are the potter, we are the clay, and, uh, and Lord, that you want to do and desire to do uh, a beautiful work this evening. And so we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, divorce and remarriage. Let's start out in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So we start out with that and we're going to break it down a bit. Um, Let's start out with um, just the first section there as far as divorce is concerned. Uh, we need to understand that divorce is not the end of life. Um, that's one of the things that, um, you know, sometimes we do make mistakes. We go through a divorce, but, but that's not the end of life. Uh, and one has not committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit when it is done. God is a, is a God of reconciliation, restoration, and He'll restore what the locusts have eaten. There's so much, but there has to be some kind of repentance in the middle of that all, and an understanding, a realization of what exactly one has done. Second, God's law does not make provision for divorce, but only under certain circumstances, and it is always because of some hardness of heart. When it, when we, when it really, what it really comes down to is the hardness of our hearts. It's always because of some hardness of heart, either hardness uh, of the heart, from one party or the other or both, is involved in divorce. Divorce is allowed, but never commanded under uh, any and all circumstances. So it is allowed, but it's not commanded. Divorce is a tearing apart of something that has become one. It is the thought of chopping off a portion of what belongs. The amputation of a body part, namely the other half of what has become one body. And so there's no arguing that. That's, uh, that's exactly what it is. Um, marriage should never be done to satisfy some type of business transaction or to benefit someone temporarily. Marriage is a sacred union and should be respected and honored as it is to becoming one and truly does represent the relationship between the groom and the bride, the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, his church. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
we hear that oftentimes, if not all the time, in uh, marriage ceremonies, right? We, we uh, hear it in weddings, and, uh, and that's a very foundation of the marriage itself. And then from there, you can uh, come to realize that uh, you are to leave your former relationship with your parents and cling to your wife, your husband, and the two shall become one. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In Malachi 2.15, it is written, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Uh, That's something very important as you do get married under the eyes of the Lord, that as as you do commit and give yourself to each other, there's also this covenant that is made with the Lord. And so it's that three-chord strand that's unbreakable in the Lord. But we need to understand that this is God's ordained uh, union. It's something that He designed, and it's to bring glory to Him. In Malachi 2.16, the verse right after that, it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence. Since the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I believe after reading these verses that God loves marriage, wouldn't you say? He loves marriage. As he is the one who designed and defined it. Man does not define it. He didn't even come up with it. It was God's idea. And he loves marriage. And he's the one who designed it and defined it and state what it represents. And we know from Malachi that he hates divorce, but has made a provision for divorce. He really, he, he has. We need to understand what it is. If the wife finds no favor in the eyes of her husband, that's the reason. But it's not just for any cause. It's for something specific. The reason has to be if she is found with indecency. And this is to be followed with a certificate of divorce. It's not just that you know, the husband finds some kind of indecency with his wife and just says, well, we're divorced now. Uh, no, just as a marriage is supposed to be, um, yes, be before the eyes of the Lord, but it is binding, so a divorce is also something that isn't to go into, we are not to go into it um, lightly, Uh, were to take it seriously, and so the man is to give her in her hand, serve her with a certificate of divorce. The indecency spoken of here is defined as sexual immorality. Jesus clarified any misconceptions that the rabbis of the time may have had uh, regarding this law because the rabbis were teaching something that was far from what was defined even here before us. They, they, they took this to a whole new level. The rabbis were teaching um, that it was the husband's duty to divorce a wife if she found no favor in his eyes, even if to, to the smallest, most ridiculous thing. Uh, you burnt my food. And, and I'm serious when I tell you. You might have heard this before, right? You burned my food. You know, that's indecency as far as I'm concerned. And so I'm going to write you a certificate of divorce and send you away. Ridiculous. So Jesus comes on the scene and he clarifies, just as we've been studying 
through the Gospel of Matthew, how he's clarifying to the teachers of the law exactly what is meant by God in these matters. And so he corrects them in Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so this quote-unquote uncleanness refers to an indecent nakedness, a shameful exposure. That man whose wife has lost favor in his eyes because of sexual immorality may give his wife a certificate of divorce. He has the right to do so, but he is not commanded to, and he is not obligated to do so either. When we put what Jesus said together with what we know about marriage and divorce, it all makes sense. Hard hearts. If a woman does not have a hard heart towards her husband, she would not commit sexual immorality. If a husband does not have a hard heart toward his wife, then he would not divorce his wife. There would be honor toward the marriage and forgiveness would be exercised toward the one who committed the offense. But if hardness of heart remains, then permission is granted for divorce. And there's another reason that people can divorce. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, which says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Um, you know, we're warned time and time again, do not be unequally yoked. And um, so there are times when two people come together, they're unequally yoked. And as long as the unbelieving uh, partner wants to remain with the other, believing, then they are to stay together. But if the unbelieving spouse decides to leave, then you let them go. And just don't do it again. Right? So we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. This goes, by the way, both for man and woman. I know I'm, I'm saying him, and that's what we're referring to here. But it goes for both, as Jesus made it very clear in Mark that this is applied to both men and women, either way. Now, divorce and remarriage in verses 2 through 4. If then the divorced woman gets remarried, and then that husband also writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her out, then the man who had originally divorced her may not take her in again to be his wife. Or, if the second husband dies, that doesn't give the... Divorced wife, uh, the widow now, an opportunity to go back with her previous husband. Um, She is considered to be defiled by the Lord, and it would be an abomination in the eyes of the Lord to return to her first husband. Defiled in the sexual, religious, and the ceremonial senses. And she is not permitted to marry the husband that originally had found some indecency. Because remember that the reason why she was divorced from her first husband is because he found some indecency in her, right? Some sexual immorality. And so she goes on to marry a second husband, and he either writes her a certificate of divorce or dies. She is not to return to the first. That is a defilement. Um, this, This does something, though, for the second marriage. Um, you know, sometimes we think that the grass is greener on the other side. 
And if at some point you remarry and realize that the grass isn't greener on the other side, that's not the time to cut that one off and go back to the first one. Well, I thought I had it bad. You know, the first time, now I have it really bad. And you know what? Forget it. We're done. I'm going to go back to the first one. No, it it gives um, really strength to the second marriage. If you're going to get married again, do it and do it right. And make sure that that is what you stick with. It's a commitment, and you are to work it out. The Lord desires that those entering marriage would carefully and prayerfully consider the covenant that they are entering into before God. Let's talk about newlyweds. It's interesting we go from that into newlyweds. (laughs) Verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. So, let's talk about divorce and remarriage, and let's talk about the newlyweds. Uh, but I think um, that is obviously something that the Lord had set up as far as the, the chronology of it. You know, because again, marriage is supposed to, uh, we are supposed to go into marriage um, with full knowledge and understanding, commitment, devotion. So newlyweds, this would be a good law to follow today. For the first year of marriage to simply be devoted to staying at home and establishing the marriage and home to enjoy and make each other happy. Imagine one year, just no outside obligations, just in the home, establishing the marriage and the home. That's exactly what we have here before us. Military and other public duties were to be suspended during this time. No other obligations. And the question for us this evening is, can a man make his wife happy without benefiting from that happiness himself? Can a man make his wife miserable without bringing misery upon himself? I can ask it the other way around. Can a man make his, or can a woman make her husband happy without benefiting from that happiness? Can a woman make her husband miserable without bringing misery upon herself? course not right we benefit or we don't benefit we deal with the consequences either way the question is what would guard this relationship from abuse because even if we if we take a look at this one year of just hey i just want to establish this home and bring it up what would guard this relationship from being abused either way well, the answer is found in Ephesians chapter 5, and let's turn there, because there's something for both. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a safeguard. The Lord laid it out very clearly. Yes, we can go to the women and say, yes, you are to respect your husbands. You are to respect that place that he has within your home. It's not that you're lesser. It's just that that's the order that God had set within the home. At the same time, husbands, you are to love your wives as yourself and provide for her and uh, wash her with the word. But this goes both ways. It's not just a one-way street. And so it safeguards the marriage if we play our roles within the marriage. If not, well, then we leave ourselves open for marriage abuse. And it can happen. You hold one thing over the other and it leads to problems. So with that understood now today... Right, we could go back to what we just read in this verse, in verse 5. That first year of marriage coming together and pouring into each other, establishing the home and understanding what marriage really is, will last us for a lifetime, or should, right? So newlyweds, go home and establish the marriage. Go enjoy your wife and then get back to work. Because that first year was for the first year. After that... Gentlemen, we need to go back to work, right? So that's what we have there for the Israelites in that time. Again, remember, this is in preparation for going into the promised land and doing it with great success. Now, verse 6 says, No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Taking a life in pledge. Don't take advantage. Taking this as collateral is uh, taking the means by which the person could make money and repay the debt. Providing for his own home, uh, let alone repaying the debt that he owes the person who's taking that as collateral. So don't take advantage. These things uh, that provide for the li- their livelihood is not to be removed from them. This is taking away someone's ability to provide for their family. And so God prohib- prohibited this as collateral, taking anything that would hinder someone from making a living. Collateral, we know that it was allowed. But uh, we are not to charge interest to our brothers. Uh, a fellow Israelite, you are not to collect any interest from. But you can collect the collateral. It's just I'm just going to hold it so that that would motivate you to pay me back without interest. And then once it's paid back, then I give it back to you. Verse 7, as we continue on, is one verse that prohibits Kidnapping. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The sanctity of life is what we have here. Kidnapping today, we know, is, is, done, for, uh, is, uh, is done for the sake of a ransom, to receive some kind of monetary value um, from someone else that holds this person uh, 
more valuable than whatever it is that they're going to give in return for them, right? So in the ancient world, though, kidnapping was mainly done to sell the person into slavery. Um, Our prime prime example, I think, uh, would be uh, someone by the name of Joseph. Joseph was taken by his brothers and sold into slavery. And so that's what was common in the ancient world to where these people were um, kidnapped, uh, stolen, and then sold into slavery. Now, any type of involuntary slavery was prohibited. Now, we know from the Word of God that there were those who would give themselves and say, well, I'm gonna, I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. But perhaps I can work for you and come under your lordship in your home, and I can benefit you, and then you can provide for me uh, maybe three square meals and, and some, uh, uh, you know, a roof over my head and, and all of that. And so that was voluntary. That was something that you would give yourself to. This is involuntary slavery, not for the purpose of forced labor in the person's home, nor for the purpose of selling into slavery. This, so this was prohibited. A kidnapper that was found out was to be put to death. He did not regard the sanctity of life, and so his life was required of him. This was considered evil in the eyes of the Lord, and taking the life of the thief served as a purging of evil from the midst of God's people. And that's what God had commanded there. Now, we go on from that to leprosy. Verse 8, Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you, as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Verse 9, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. So anytime leprosy was detected, and this, this was um, uh, different uh, skin diseases that could come about. But anytime leprosy is detected, the Lord wanted them to handle it quickly. Don't, don't let it go on. Don't overlook it. Don't ignore it. You need to deal with this leprosy immediately, just as it had been prescribed for them to handle, uh, to do, back in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. And we've gone through that. They would present themselves to the Levitical priesthood, and they would check them out, and, uh, and, and they would keep an eye on this skin disease to see if it uh, did certain things. And uh, they would go into quarantine if, if it was advanced, and uh, there were certain ceremonial uh, washings and rituals that they were to do in order to come back into um, the, uh, the families and the households and, and be among the people of Israel. Now, this would prevent it from becoming a dangerous plague throughout the land. of spreading. We, we don't want leprosy to spread throughout the people of Israel. And so this was the way to handle it, and again, handle it quickly. At the same time, the Lord wanted his people to remember what happened to Miriam when they had left Egypt. She became leprous after having led Aaron into rebellion against Moses. And because of this, she became leprous by the hand of God. Uh, She was kept this way for seven days, and she was quarantined as a leper away from the people. So, the question is, was God referring to Miriam in order to warn them against rebelling? Or was it a word to make sure they quarantined anyone that was found with leprosy regardless of their prominence? I think it's both. Um, you know, because Miriam was very prominent. She was the brother of Aaron, which we know Aaron, Aaron and Miriam were the brother and sister of 
Moses, right? Very prominent. I mean, this was, this was the family that, uh, that was, you know, very visible. And uh, if anyone would, you know, be overlooked, it would be Aaron and Miriam, right? No, no, no. Miriam wasn't overlooked either. And she experienced this leprosy as she herself led Aaron in this, uh, this, with this heart of rebellion toward Moses. The thing here is there, is, there are no favorites. Deal with the leper appropriately and take heed and make sure to avoid rebellion toward the person that God has ordained to lead. Um, this appears to address both of these. Now, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Again, going back to the whole structure of God and how it is that he sets up even the home and the church itself, and, and we know that that's the structure that he had even in, in the uh, times when the Israelites came together. There's, there's structure, and so there's always a blessing that comes by um, honoring and really walking in obedience to the Lord. And as you do that with those who are in leadership positions, it's an honor to the body as a whole. And it, and it benefits everyone. And so that's what we see there. And knowing that there is responsibility and accountability going both ways, right? And so we know with Miriam, as she had this heart of rebellion against Moses, uh, so she led Aaron, and she experienced uh, leprosy. Uh, for seven days, and she was set apart. Now, leprosy is also a picture of what? As is leaven? Sin. Sin. And so, the moment there's any detection of leprosy or sin, that is to be set apart and identified as such, right? To be dealt with. All right, so let's move on from there. Verse 10 as we continue. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall, yeah, you shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God." In other words, treat others with dignity. Just because you loan someone money doesn't make you their master. And it is expected of you to treat your brother with respect and honor, with dignity and with compassion. If there is collateral to collect due to a loan that was made, then the person collecting the collateral is to remain outside the home. Can you imagine, hey, listen, you just borrowed... Ten bucks. I'm going to go into your home and pick something out for myself just to hold as collateral. That, that would not be good. That, that's, that's heartless. That's uh, not having any compassion whatsoever. And so the Lord wanted to make sure, hey, listen, treat each other with dignity, honor, respect. If you come to the, to the house of the person whom you lent money to, stay outside. Respect that home. And let them come to you and give you whatever it is as collateral. Accept it. Okay. And if this item that is given to you as collateral 
is the very thing that they need for that evening to remain warm. Maybe a blanket, maybe a, a coat, a jacket, something that they need to, to, to you know, be warm. Then you are to go back to that person's home, give it to them for the evening. And uh, it's interesting that by doing that, this shows compassion, respect, and honor toward your fellow brother. And the Lord considers it to be righteousness before him. Righteousness. And it's a blessing to you because you did show this heart of compassion that reflects really the Lord's heart and his compassion. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42 says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So, compassion. Show others that they are dignified before your eyes. Verse 14 says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So pay up. Do not withhold. Those who are employers, hey, listen, if, if uh, the thing that you've settled with your employee is to pay him on a daily basis, that's what we see here, then pay him on a daily basis. Don't withhold. Uh, if it's every two weeks, it's every two weeks. If it's every week, it's every week. But do not withhold it. In other words, don't take advantage of your employees. I'll keep coming to work and maybe I'll pay you next week. Oh, you know what? I don't have it. Keep coming next week and maybe I'll have it. And you take advantage of them. To withhold wages from your workers is to oppress them. It is an unjust exercise of authority. You have not been given by anyone and it is in direct opposition to God's word. No matter who it is that is working for you, pay up. Don't hold anything back, especially knowing that they are relying on the same income for the well-being of their family, their home. Uh, it says very clearly here that they're, they're, they're trusting that you're going to give them what they're due so that they could provide for their family. They're, they're poor. They're not wealthy. They don't have money coming out of their pockets. And so they, they're counting on that income. Just remember that if you as an employer hold back wages and they cry out to the Lord, you will be guilty of sinning. In fact, in James chapter 5, um, we, we read about the rich and the warning that the Lord, the Lord gives towards those who are rich. In verse 1 it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, is it just simply for being rich that, we're, that we see these words? No, 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 because we go on. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Wow, that's the very same thing that we just read here in Deuteronomy. And the cry of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury 
and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's the very same thing that we just read, right? Don't hold back because the cry of the person that you're oppressing may reach the ears of the Lord and he will bring judgment against you. And so again, this is all in preparation for the people to go into the promised land with great success, blessing each other and glorifying the Lord. And that's what his desire was. That's what the Lord's desire was and is even today. So treat people with respect, honor, dignity, compassion. God rewards a heart of compassion. Don't harden your heart toward people. That's very important for for us to understand. Don't harden your heart toward anyone. Verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Um, Personal responsibility for sinning. God is stating very clearly that a person will be held accountable for their own sin. No one else will be held accountable for what has been done by another, even a son or a father, if the other sins. I know, you know, today, unfortunately, we have a lot of people that want to just pass the buck. The reason I am the way I am is because, you know, just fill in the blanks, right? No, listen, we need to be accountable for our own actions. As we come into adulthood, you know, and some is earlier than others, you know, let's get to a point to where, listen, what happened in the past happened in the past. Does it influence the way I am today? Yes, it does. But do the errors of the past now justify all the sin that I commit today? The answer is no. No, you, you have the power to choose. You can exercise your own will, and you will be held accountable for your own actions. Mommy and daddy aren't, going to, aren't the ones that are going to be held responsible for your actions. Uh, for you, your son or your daughter isn't going to be held accountable for their actions. Uh, you provoke each other, that's fine, but listen to this. Another person's influence or provocation does not justify another's reaction. God holds each person responsible for their own actions, regardless of the circumstances. So we can look at the circumstances and say, well, that's the reason why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting. Uh, Not justified, sorry. Not, Not justified. Either way. A person's taunts do not justify retaliation of any sort. So... Make sure that you remember this. In verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Each one is responsible and will be held accountable. So, we have that. Something very important is sometimes we like to blame each other too for what happens with our our kids. And, And the Lord is saying, No. Now, at some point, they're responsible for their own actions. Compassion, though, as we go on, verse 17 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. 
Compassion. Be compassionate toward all. Remember. Remember where you came from. Remember how it felt like to be a slave, to be oppressed. Remember those things. Remember how you were redeemed by God, though, most of all. To be just toward someone in need is to be compassionate toward them. And God commands us to be compassionate just as He has demonstrated toward His people. So He's saying, remember remember what it felt like, but remember that you were delivered from that. Be the hand that is willing to deliver people. Not a person who oppresses them, but a person that facilitates this Well, the lessening of the burden. Because remember how it is that the Lord had relieved you of the burden. He reconciled you. He restored you. He redeemed you with an outstretched arm. Remember that. And be compassionate toward each other. And then finally, in verses 19 through 22. It says, When you reap your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow." You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Another commandment by the Lord. It's interesting that the Lord has to command us to be compassionate. I think it's very easy for us to be greedy. Hey, this is my field. I sowed it. I worked hard. All of that which came forth... It's for me. I'm to reap what I sow, right? Let them who have nothing, let them go to work and find their own way. And I say, no, I, I, I'm, commanding, I'm commanding you to do this. I'm commanding you to be compassionate. It blesses me that you will not go back and clean that field up like you know, gathering everything whether it be olives, whether it be wheat, whether no matter what it is, let some fall by the wayside and leave it alone. Leave some on the trees. Don't, don't, don't get it all. Really, those people who are in need will come. And listen to this. It wasn't that they were just given, because the Lord didn't command this. He didn't say, gather everything, and then after you've gathered everything, then I want you to take some of that and, and go to those who are in need and give it to them. He didn't say that, right? Let them come to the field. This is dignifying them. This is respecting and honoring. Hey, listen, if you don't work, you won't eat. That's biblical. That's actually biblical. If you don't work, you don't eat. So go do some work. Even for these people here, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, they were to come to the field and glean from that which was left. And the owner of that field was to not hold them back. They could come in freely 
and gather as whatever it is that they need. Now hold them back. But they were to come in and do that work. So this is for all of us that can be very stingy and collect everything for ourselves. The Lord is saying, no, leave some for others. Consider others who are in need. The Lord names them specifically, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The farmer is not to harvest all in his field as to leave some for those who are in need. This was also a display of compassion and dignity toward those who were in need and are in need because they had to collect what they needed. Again, it wasn't given to them. And again, the Lord desires that the people would remember their time as slaves in Egypt. Remember that. It's very, it's humbling. It, it does a person good to remember where you once were. And what it is that the Lord has brought you out from. It's good. We don't live in the past, but it's good to remember. I was once lost. I was once blind. I was once in darkness, and now I am saved. I can walk. I see I have hope in Christ. But what were you delivered from? You may not have a testimony that says, well, you know, I was down and, I, down and out. I was shooting up heroin and all that. And just this one moment, uh, I came to the Lord and I was clean. And you may not have that testimony. But let me tell you that you were delivered from the very same thing that that person that does have that testimony was delivered from. You were delivered from condemnation. You were delivered from eternal condemnation. Uh, eternity separated from the Lord. That's what we have in common in Christ. We don't have to have that kind of testimony in order to have a powerful testimony. The powerful testimony is that Jesus Christ paid it all. And by believing in Him, in the Son of God, we know eternal life with Him. We were delivered from the very same thing. And so it's good to remember that. It's good to remember where we once were, just as God kept telling the Israelites, remember, remember who delivered you. Remember where you were. Be compassionate toward each other. Love each other. And this I command you, to have a heart toward other people. And that's what he desired. Take marriage seriously. It is not to be entered into lightly. Remember that it serves as an example of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Be compassionate toward all in need. Never oppress. And take responsibility for your own actions. It'll do you good. Once you take responsibility for your own actions, what happens is you find yourself in a place where you can repent. You can repent. Mia culpa, right? Does that mean it's my fault? It's my fault my fault. I've sinned against you and you alone. And that's the only time that we can do it. If we don't, then we continue to look for other people to justify why we stand where we stand. And that does us no good. The Lord calls us to repent. If we confess our sins, God, He is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from, from all unrighteousness. He is just in doing that. Why? Because someone else has already paid for us for all of these sins. So all we simply have to do at this point is confess our sins to Him. And if we do so, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God desires humility and compassion, love, grace, and that we would be considerate of one another. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you can minister to us by it, Lord. You can correct and direct and exhort and rebuke, Lord. You can do anything that you desire to do. And, uh, and I know that this evening you've accomplished uh, those very things um, as we have studied this chapter. Father, I pray that these words would continue to resonate in our hearts, that we would meditate on your word, and, uh, and it be, Lord, not only beneficial uh, to us, Lord, but to those around us, and it would serve to glorify you. And so, Lord, give us hearts of compassion. Lord, help us to be considerate of one another. And, Lord, to apply grace and mercy. uh, To lend a helping hand when needed. And, Lord, may we take our marriages seriously also. And, Lord, really understand each other. And... Make an effort, Lord, to, uh, to be considered of one another in any and all circumstances. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to your hands one more time. We ask your blessing and we pray this in Jesus' name.